so glad you've joined us on the ERLC podcast to explore how the Bible addresses important cultural issues pertaining to life, religious liberty, marriage and family, and human dignity, and how we can walk in wisdom for God's glory and for the flourishing of our neighbors. If you're enjoying this podcast and find it helpful, please leave a review wherever you listen. This will help more people find and benefit from what we're learning together. We are grateful for the time you take to join us for these conversations. You're listening to the ERLC podcast. We're not going to be done with the podcast at 1130. You want to bet? Uh-huh. I do want to bet. Better start rolling. Roll that beautiful oh bean footage. Word. You know what that's from? Nope. Bush's Baked Beans over in East Tennessee. That's hilarious. Get you some smokehouse beans. Hello, and welcome back to this week's episode of the ERLC Podcast, where each week we'll be talking about our work at the ERLC and focusing on what Christians should know about the things going on in the world. I'm Lindsay Nicolay, and with me in the studio is jolly good Brent Leatherwood. Your ever-faithful sidekick. Here I am. I didn't even realize that that rhymed. Jolly good Brent Leatherwood. (laughs) I'm a poet, and I didn't even know it. Don't. (laughs) <laughs> Don't do that. Don't. We want people to listen through. We the, do. We do. Like you having a good morning, Brent? Podcast. It's a great morning. It's a beautiful okay. day here in the in the neighborhood. neighborhood. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's start taking a look at what's happening this week, and I'm going to go ahead and get us started with what the ERLC has been talking about. First up is an article by our colleague Jason Thacker, and it's titled, Is Facebook Discipling Your Church Members? How Technology is Shaping the Church and Altering Our Worldview. So whether we realize it or not, our scrolling isn't harmless activity. It's having an effect on us, and it's having a discipling effect. It's changing us. So it's important for us as we use our smartphones to remember that, yes, technology is a tool. It's neither good or bad, but we can choose to use it for good or bad. But again, it's not totally neutral. These tools are designed by non-neutral actors. They're designed by people to shape us, to have an effect on us. And things like smartphones are very effective in shaping us. Smartphones have totally revolutionized our world and even the way we think. And as Jason continues to point out in this article, most importantly, we must, as Christians, continually ask ourselves if we're being transformed to be more like Christ through our use of technology, or if we are ultimately being conformed to the likeness of this world instead. And that's why it's important for churches to think about this issue. How is Facebook, how is technology, how are smartphones discipling our church members, including ourselves? Well, once again, Jason is just helping us think through technology and and how we can wisely use it. And Lindsay, you know, my, my preference would be to take my phone and go and throw it in the Cumberland River here because I just, I really do not like it uh, in the way that it has just like invaded our personal lives and, and everything at home. And yet at the same time, it is the reality of where we are. And so putting up healthy boundaries is absolutely essential because otherwise it will just, it will take over your life. And look, there there are good things about 
you know, social media, being able to obviously communicate with with friends, colleagues, family who are, you know, far removed uh, from, from where you are, but then also to be able to stay on top of, um, you know, important events as, as they occur. At the same time, I just think that, you know, social media just deluges us with information to the point that, I mean, I'm just not sure that we were ever wired by God to be able to process information and opinions and hot takes at such a rapid pace that that's what I think is really harmful. Uh, And then just the incentive structure that comes with social media uh, prodding us to share our own opinions, uh, whether they are fully informed or not. But just go ahead and put that hot take out into the world. That is just not the way that I think God designed us. And so we absolutely need to be putting up boundaries, and we need to be praying through how best to uh, wisely use this technology. Well, yeah, and as Jason and others have pointed out too, we're effectively acting like little G-gods, curating our own Mm. worlds, creating our own worlds, bearing the burdens of the world, taking on every piece of information, and we are limited creatures. We are created beings. We are not God, and we cannot healthily stand up under a technological world without boundaries. So I guess it's safe to say that your kids aren't anywhere close to getting smartphones. In their own lives, yeah. No, 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 they're not going to be anywhere near. (laughs) I know, Uh neither are mine. (laughs) Mine are going to be like back in the Stone Age compared to their kids. So next up is an article by Catherine Parks, and I'm really excited about this article and how it turned out. So it's titled, What is the State of Abortion Around the World? An International Roundup of Recent Legislative Efforts Regarding Abortion. So this is from the opening. According to the pro-choice Guttmacher Institute, around 119 million unplanned pregnancies occurred each year between 2015 and 2019. Of those pregnancies, uh, around 61% or 73 million ended in abortion. Tragic. These numbers represent 73 million precious lives lovingly created in the image of God. Those numbers are heartbreaking. So Catherine looks at places like Mexico, South Korea, Poland, other countries as well. Some countries are trying to um, legalize abortion. Some countries are trying to reverse legalization. She also takes a look at here, our home country of the United States, where that same Guttmacher Institute, remember, is pro-abortion, has called 2021 the, quote, worst legislative year ever for U.S. abortion rights, which is something that we should we should celebrate because that means it is a fabulous to be celebrated legislative year for pre-born lives. So one of the reasons why we wanted to commission this article is because we are prayerfully looking ahead here in the United States to December when the Supreme Court is going to hear a case concerning a Mississippi law banning most abortions after 15 weeks. We've talked about it here on the ERLC podcast, Dobbs versus Jackson Women's Health Organization. And they asked the court to overturn the rulings of Roe V. Wade and Casey, which are the two landmark abortion rulings in our country that have led to millions and millions of preborn lives being lost in this country. So, just as much as I love that this pro abortion organization called 
2021 in U.S., the worst legislative year ever for U.S. abortion rights because of the lives that were saved. We should pray that 2022 gets labeled by the Guttmacher Institute as the year that set abortion rights back to before 1973, because we know that that means lives saved. And then also as the church, we should be prepared to come alongside these abortion vulnerable women and families so that they feel loved and supported and they feel as if they don't need to make the decision for abortion because they know that their child will receive the care that he or she needs. And I think it's easy, you know, we get so consumed, and rightly so, here in our American context with the progress that's being made on helping our neighbors see the dignity of preborn lives and and rolling back some of these uh, abortion measures that are in place across the country and federally. But we kind of tend to lose sight of of what is happening beyond our shores. And, um, you know, this should just serve as a, as a recognition that the abortion industry is predatory. It is looking to financially prey upon vulnerable women and families in crisis. And uh, it, is, it is not content to just stop at the lines where America ends. It is looking to go into these international contexts and figure out how to continue its devilish work. And uh, th- that is why we want to, at the URLC, take a, a more global view to equip the church and equip our Christian brothers and sisters overseas and help support them uh, with moves like we're doing this week in, in Northern Ireland in, in bringing uh, one of our uh, Psalm 139 initiative uh, ultrasound machines uh, to that area of the world. And, and we, we have a heart to do that elsewhere because this work is so important, not only here in the U.S., but globally. Well, and as Christians, we should think globally anyway, because our God is a global God. He created the nations, and he's drawing people from every tribe, tongue, and nation to himself. And in this day and age, it's easier than ever to have an eye toward the nations because of technology. And here's there's a good example of a good use of technology. So yeah, we are thrilled with this piece, how it educates us and equips us to be able to pray for the Lord's work regarding the tragedy of abortion and regarding the protection of, of millions of lives, preborn lives, and these abortion-vulnerable women. Finally, an article that I wanted to highlight by Jill Wagner because it includes a journalism legend, an interview with a journalism legend, and it's titled, Mindy Bells Helps Christians Think About the Middle East, 9-11 Suffering and the Hope We Have in Jesus. Mindy is with World Magazine, and she draws on her experience around the world to help us understand taking the long view of 9-11's effect on our country. You know, she says, we're really not that far removed from 9-11, even though it was 20 years ago. So there's still a, a lot that we'll have to look back and process about the events of 9-11. She helps us think soberly about the conflict in Afghanistan and believers that she's encountered there as well, and their patience in the midst of this long long conflict. And then she encourages us to be compelled into action and compassion by the love of Christ as we hear about suffering around the world and we seek to engage it, especially the suffering of our fellow believers. So we're thankful Mindy took the time to do this, and we're thankful for her voice and her her journalistic professionalism and biblical worldview at this time in history. Mindy Bells is just whether you're coming at it from a Christian perspective or a secular perspective, she's an incredible journalist. And the fact that she can keep together in in her mind 
all the different global conflicts and zones of chaos uh, out there is is just remarkable. And I, I'm just so appreciative uh, that she sat down to just run through uh, some of those things and and some of those areas uh, of concern. And I think this is just a, a great article and a great bit of interviewing by our own Joe Wagner. Yeah, we had some really helpful and great articles this week as I'm biased, but I think we do every week. I'm thankful for all the people that contribute and people like Mindy that take of their time to be able to help educate, as we say, and equip the church to answer these complex issues from a biblical worldview. There, as I say, every week, there are lots of other things on our site that we would love for you to go check out. But for now, Brent, that's your look at what's happening on ERLC.com. All right, Brent, moving into our culture section this week, why don't you tell us what's going on? Well, just like last week, we started off with news from the latest SBC Executive Committee trustee meeting. We're going to do that again this week. And as a look into the future, we're probably going to do it again next week. Uh, That is because, our audience will remember, the trustee meeting adjourned without making a final determination on how it would move forward with the investigation that was initiated by messengers at this summer's Southern Baptist annual meeting into what has gone on with the SBCEC as it relates to abuse. And they held a meeting this week and decided they needed another seven days. So this first story comes to us from Baptist Press, and it states, a five-hour meeting by executive committee members Tuesday, September 28th, included debate over three different motions and amendments towards negotiating a contract with the Sexual Abuse Task Force and Guidepost Solutions. Uh, Guidepost is the outside organization uh, that would actually conduct the investigation. The end result brought another agreement to extend discussions another seven days in order to pursue a potential agreement through what came to be called the Michigan model. So needless to say, uh, there was a lot of back and forth on uh, whether to waive attorney-client privilege, which is something uh, that messengers asked the executive committee uh, to undertake if the investigatory body came back with that recommendation, which they did, and the EC has yet to formally take that, or should they not want to waive attorney-client privilege, there's this Michigan model, which essentially involves an additional layer of uh, attorneys being present to uh, determine what uh, what material could be waived or not. And so th- th- this gets this gets very complicated. Gets there's a lot of legalese involved. But needless to say, they after meeting for a long time, they just decided, let's take another seven days. Well, in that seven-day period uh, from Tuesday, uh, there has been mounting pressure from a number of different churches and state conventions uh, throughout the SBC that have started to essentially send the message to the SBCEC, look, if you do not comply with this, you are going to put us in the position where we may have to assess uh, reallocating our cooperative program dollars away from the executive committee, which, you know, that is not something that I think any Southern Baptist church, any pastor uh, ever considers doing lightly. Uh, So I think that is just more a comment on just the extraordinary 
circumstances that, that we are seeing play out here. All eyes are now looking ahead to this coming Tuesday uh, where the the executive committee will will meet again virtually and you know I think a lot of us are praying for a, a final determination to be reached, uh, one that responds to and adheres to uh, what the messengers directed and then we can we can get to the the bottom. Uh, of all of these different events that are associated with this. Yeah, you know, it feels like second verse, same as the first. Uh, And I know for survivors watching this, particularly those who were um, abused while in SBC churches or by SBC uh, church members or pastors, it's tragic and it's got to be really hard to watch all of this playing out. And Yes, may the Lord cause the truth to prevail here. May we count the cost and say that, the, as Rachel Den Hollander says, what is a girl worth? That a girl, little girl, little boy is worth more than whatever the word that's been thrown around, the fiduciary, which has, as our friend Josh said, if I never hear the word fiduciary again, it will be too soon. But may their lives be as counted more than whatever fiduciary costs might come up as a result of waiving this privilege. So these are heady, heady moments for the SBC. And so I think all of us, uh, we should be praying for, for wisdom and humility and for the process to be established uh, where things that, that potentially are hidden or, or things that have been done right, for all of that just to be put out in front of all of us so that we know how to move forward as a convention of cooperating churches. All right. So next, let's move over to the COVID-19 front. And this week, the CDC issued some of its strongest guidance to date, urging pregnant women to be vaccinated, according to NBC News. The guidance comes as more than a quarter million cases of COVID in pregnant women have been reported, 22,000 of whom were hospitalized, according to the CDC. A total of 161 pregnant women have died of COVID, the CDC said, with 22 deaths in August alone. Yet, less than a third of pregnant women have been vaccinated, the agency reported. The new notice is meant to strengthen previous CDC guidance issued last month when the agency first advised pregnant women to get the vaccine. Uh, So, A... Hey, kudos to NBC News for, uh, first of all, writing a report about pregnant women, not pregnant people. So, I mean, <laughs> yes, we just need true. to acknowledge that. We've, <laughs> we've read several stories recently uh, where the reader is left with the impression that people other than women can get pregnant. And that is a biological fact that cannot happen. But then uh, just, you know, we have said time and again, please get the vaccine. A number of us as, as Christians, we have prayed for the Lord to intervene in this this horrible pandemic, and the vaccines are the way out of this. And gosh, look, more than likely, if you get COVID, you know, you're you're probably going to be okay. But gosh, why risk it when you've got a way to avoid much of what may be out there? And, And so, this is, I think, important guidance from the CDC, and pray that more people will will listen to it. And this comes in the context of, as Axios was reporting, that across the country, new COVID cases are falling by 20%. So a number of analysts are thinking we may be on the back end of this most recent surge caused by the Delta variant. But from the story, it says this, new coronavirus infections in the U.S. fell by 25% over the past two weeks, another hopeful sign that the worst may be behind us. The U.S. is now averaging roughly 114,000 new cases per day. 
That is still a lot, but it is a significant improvement from this summer when the Delta variant unleashed a new wave of infections, hospitalizations, and death. So uh, right here at home, Tennessee saw the biggest improvement over the past two weeks, while Connecticut has the lowest absolute number of cases per capita at just 14 per 100,000 people. So this is this is good news, but we're not at the end of this. And hopefully pregnant women out there, if you are able to get the vaccine, so that way maybe we can just move this further along and further away from any additional surges coming in the future. Yeah, well, playing off of what I just said, as we're talking about the word fiduciary, if I never hear the word coronavirus again, (laughs) it'll still be too soon. I know everybody is so weary of talking about it, as am I. Uh, I'm thankful for this strong urging from the CDC because it does seem like pregnant women are adversely affected by COVID. And, oh man, that would just be so terrifying to me. I was pregnant during the first wave when it didn't seem to affect pregnant women as much. But I'm, yeah, I'm thankful for the vaccines. I just feel like it's, again, it's the second verse, same as the first. I'm thankful. And uh, I just wanted to celebrate too here at the SBC building. Our building manager, was uh, hospitalized with COVID and it was touch and go. It was pretty scary. But this morning when I walked in, I actually saw him. He's here. He's still on oxygen when he's moving around. He's not on as much oxygen as he has previously been on. He's getting better. And I just wanted to celebrate. It was so good to see him. Somebody who's really been affected majorly by COVID did not know if he was going to make it. And the Lord has spared his life. I was so thankful for that. And um. He was just so grateful for people's prayers. We are glad to see, shout out to Mr. Phil. We are glad to see him back in action. We are so glad. And I shot a photo of him the other day to the team and everybody was just so excited that Phil was on his way to recovery. It's certainly been a long last uh, month and a half or so for him. And uh, we are, gosh, he he just adds so much uh, spirit and joy to the SBC building here in Nashville. So it's truly been a delight to see him again. Okay, this next story comes to us also from Axios, and it is about YouTube cracking down on anti-vaccine misinformation that's out there. And look, this has been a reoccurring issue with a number of social media platforms to try and determine the, the best way to allow for folks to to kind of speak their mind, but at the same time, crack down on things that might end up being harmful. Uh, And so this is just the latest chapter in that. YouTube is beefing up its misinformation policies to crack down on anti-vaccine misinformation beyond COVID-19 vaccinations, executives told Axios. Under the new policy, YouTube will terminate the channels of what it calls prominent vaccine misinformation spreaders, including the channel of the Robert F. Kennedy Jr. affiliated Children's Health Defense. YouTube will also terminate the channels belonging to Joseph Merkula, Aaron Elizabeth, and Sherry Tenpenny, all identified by the Center for Countering Digital Hate as among a dozen playing leading roles in spreading online misinformation about COVID vaccines. I honestly, this feels like it is prepped for a Jason Thacker uh, explainer on what all this means, how Christians should uh, read this news, how we should thoughtfully process it, what it means. I mean, that's the thing. 
a lot of times these actions, uh, they end up having implications in other areas, particularly as it relates to online free speech. And so I just can't wait. The tension is palpable. I'm just waiting uh, for Jason Thacker's uh, newest think piece about this. And I just reached out to him on Slack too. I was like, how about you cover this? Because <laughs> it's it's kind of complicated to think through, you know, what's okay for them to vet out and and what's not and where does privacy and and freedom of information come in. What I want to know practically is how they do this. Do you imagine all the videos that they have to crack down on, not just with COVID, other things, but all the videos that are streaming on YouTube? I mean, I know there's some kind of technology that grabs certain words. I would just like to know the process behind this. Does somebody have to watch all of these videos and flag things? Just seems like that would be mind-numbing. It's fascinating to think about to me. Okay, and so for our final story, uh, we are looking to Washington, where there have been a number of deliberations going on about spending bills, infrastructure bills, but there is one that is particularly important to, well, all of us and, frankly, the global economy, and that is whether the U.S. government is going to shut down or not. And just before we came on air, ABC News is up with a story about the U.S. Senate reaching a last-minute deal to avoid a government shutdown. From the story, it says this, the Senate was set to vote Thursday on a deal party leaders reached late Wednesday to avert a government shutdown that would have affected hundreds of thousands of federal workers and slammed an economy still struggling to recover from the pandemic. All of this with just hours left to stave off a crisis. For folks who may not know, the government is set to shut down tonight at midnight. Under the deal announced by Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer, Senators are expected to dispense with a handful of Republican amendments and then approve a temporary funding bill that not only averts a shutdown until December 3rd, but also disaster aid for states ravaged by extreme weather and money to further assist Afghan refugees. Quote, the last thing the apparent American people need is for the government to grind to a halt, Schumer said on the Senate for Thursday morning. Wouldn't that just be nice, Lindsay, if uh, as your credit card bill was coming due, you would just say, well, I, I'm just going to extend my own line of credit and uh, we'll just kick this can down the road a few more months uh, so that you can go spend it on things at Target.com and Amazon and all the other favorite places you like to go. That would be so nice. I'd go on an Amazon spending spree, shopping spree, actually. <laughs> and to be clear, after you had already done so. Oh, uh, God, honest, yes. <laughs> we, we set this time. We're, we're going to make sure and pay our bills and fully fund our government. And now we're just going to you know, kick the can down the road a little bit. So uh, now that said, this there is the other uh, issue with the, uh, the debt limit. Uh, and, and that is also uh, something that uh, is coming up. And it said this as, Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell has continued to insist that his conference will not help raise the borrowing limit or even expedite Democrats' ability to do so alone, citing concerns about the majority party's intention to pass trillions in new spending for social and climate policy. This, despite a debt ceiling increase paying for the past bipartisan debt. So these things are riding along on on uh, very close parallel tracks, uh, funding the government and raising the debt ceiling. So thankfully, uh, one of these crises will be averted. And, and so, yeah. Some of these talks are necessary. Sometimes they're laughable to me because at this point, we're so far in debt 
and we continue to spend, like yes. it wouldn't be workable in uh, my life. So where's the money even coming from? It's, it's just it's monopoly money, <laughs> really. That's that. Yes, that is that is what it can seem like. I mean, the reality is there are steps that can be taken to both start paying down our debt and get our nation into a, a more fiscally responsible posture. But honestly, I, I got to tell you, w- for the better part of the last several decades, uh, neither party, when it is in power, has wanted to take those steps. And whether it is paying down the debt, whether it is getting some of the the entitlement spending that is just continuing to balloon, or doing things such as uh, getting our budget into a place where it can be balanced, those have just been moves that that neither party has been willing to take, and and so it's it's not a it's not a one party is worse than the other. I mean, we should be clear about that. No, and uh, just ask yourself this question as a member of our audience: Would you run your own household this way? Would you run your own finances this way? Of course, you wouldn't. That wouldn't be God honoring, and unfortunately, uh, our nation's leaders have decided to to run things this way. All right, Lindsay. Well, that is your look at This Week in Culture. Thanks for that, Brent. And now it's time for The Lunchroom, where we tell you what we're talking about with each other. Brent, what do you have for us today? This week, I've been talking about rocking chairs because I am a huge fan of rocking chairs and I'm getting ready to have a new one delivered that I'm very excited about. I think more people out there, especially maybe our our folks uh, who listen, who are up in the North, who don't really appreciate uh, rocking chairs, they need to do so. And um, I had the absolute joy this week of going on to (laughs) crackerbarrel.com. and procuring a, a rocking chair for me. So I'm, I'm actually really excited about this, Lindsay. And I know you are. You can't wait to see my brand new rocking chair. Well, who buys rocking chairs from Cracker Barrel for their office? Well, is what they, I don't they've, understand. They've got a great selection of rocking chairs. So why? where else would you go? I do love Cracker Barrel, though. I, I don't want to hate on it. I love it. Uh, So I look forward to sitting in your rocking chair, Brent. (laughs) Well, for my lunchroom, I was down here in the studio waiting for Brent to get here, killing some time, and I started going on YouTube and listening to different, uh, or watching, listening to different music videos, whatever it's called that you do when you're listening to music and watching a music video. But I came across a new For King and Country song. So if you don't, if you're not familiar with For King and Country's music, you're missing out. Also, if you have not seen them live, you're missing out. They put on one of the best shows in the Christian music industry. So I highly recommend it, especially their Christmas tour. But they have a great new song called For God Is With Us. And of course, it has the Christmas theme there too. It is so good. And um, I just, I love their music. They are some of the best in the biz. And I say that even though my husband is employed by a different label, but some of his songwriters write with for King Country. So go check them out and enjoy some new music for your weekend. My wife represents for King Country. So I appreciate you rooting for for us. Y'all can eat more than beans and rice <laughs> for dinner. Just kidding. <laughs> uh, there there is some there is some good music out there and um 
and people should go listen to it. Yes, they should. Yeah, and support Brent's family and his kids. And your family. <laughs> yes, Because exactly. that's what you, that's your, right. your husband's in Christian that's music right. too. Just so <laughs> That's right. That's right. Go check it out. And just as a reminder, you can find links to all the things we talked about today in the show notes. And if you like the podcast, please consider helping us spread the word by sharing the episode on social media or going into your favorite podcast app and leaving us a rating and review. And in addition to listening to the ERLC podcast each week, be sure to check out our other ERLC podcasts. The Digital Public Square airs every Monday, and its host is Jason Thacker, who is one of the leading voices on technology and culture. And if you like staying informed about important policy issues that matter to Southern Baptists, Capital Conversations is our podcast directly from Capitol Hill. Search for The Digital Public Square and Capital Conversations wherever you listen to your podcasts. Thanks again for listening, and we'll be back next week with more content. Mm-hmm.